welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about two movies that I'm sure everyone saw back-to-back, First Cow and Bill and Ted Face the Music. And joining me today, we are very happy to have my friend Ben Lubin join us for the first time in a while, even if he did not bring any homemade French desserts. Ben, shame on you. Sorry, man. Next time. <laughs> I know. I don't, I, I, I've heard about good, great things about your coffee tea. So uh, I'm looking I'm looking forward to trying that sometime. That's a, that's a reference to First Cow, which we'll start with today. It's the newest film from uh, writer, director, editor. That was something I, I thought was pretty cool to see. I don't know if she edits all of her movies, Ben, but she edited this one. Uh, Kelly Reichert, and it tells the story of and uh, that largely takes place in the 1820s in Oregon Territory. It follows a chef who is working for a group of fur trappers played by John Magaro. His name is Otis Figowitz, but he, we'll call him Cookie because that's what he gets called in the movie he's traveling around with these fur trappers he comes across a uh, chinaman in the forest who has been running from some russians after uh, having to kill one of them in self-defense and they kind of strike up a quick friendship and after they part ways and then reunite a little later they decide to uh, share the living space that is the shack that the chinaman named king lu uh put together and they see that the one wealthy uh english colonizer in the area played by toby jones has brought the first cow to the oregon territory and they decide they will start uh stealing milk from it to uh start their own baked goods business and that the movie pretty much goes from there and we have to see how they're gonna pull off their little bit of a heist because it's 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 a heist movie as funny as it sounds is it's largely also about these guys uh stealing milk from a cow ben i guess where i first want to start with this because you and i i feel like we've been talking about this movie for two years it was a long time in the works it was actually a release it was actually got released at festivals last fall and kind of got pushed to this year and then covid pushed us back even further so i've been thinking about this movie a lot and i a lot of people had posted reviews of it and i tried not to learn too much about it but I mean, I, I know plenty about Kelly Riker, and I have plenty of reference points that I keep see, hearing people make to these movies. And I think it's pretty funny that uh, I'm doing this two episodes after I did a podcast with our friends Josh and Holden on the films of Albert Brooks, because we made the point when we were doing that podcast, or I made the point that I, I, I the last of his films that I watched was Real Life, which was actually the, his first feature, and it in a way actually felt like a culmination of like all of his movies, as funny as that was, because it was actually his first movie, but it just felt like it was so ambitious and uh, had so much in it that felt like it took from everything else he eventually ended up doing. But I actually genuinely think that Kelly Reichert's most recent film, in a way, does actually feel like a culmination of a lot of her work. Did it kind of strike you the same way? Uh, Yeah, I I would agree with that for the most part. And I actually want to comment on that observation about kind of a first movie being a culmination of a director's work. Right. Because it's totally tangential, but I think it's a really interesting Mm -hmm. thing because it's – it's a really fair observation, and it's one of the reasons why, in many cases, my favorite of a director's films will often be either their first or one of their early movies. It, because at that point, they're still willing to trust themselves to follow their kind of weirder, more personal impulses, and they haven't necessarily learned to censor themselves in the way that the industry can kind of force filmmakers to do. Like, for me, kind of the the ultimate example of that like my favorite Martin Scorsese movie is Mean Streets, hmm. um, which I think has everything interesting about 
later films like Goodfellas, but it actually takes it to a further, more personal place. It's less technically polished, but you can actually see everything of who Scorsese is as a filmmaker, and I think he actually pushes it to more kind of personal ends. And so I think there are a lot of filmmakers who have early films that kind of follow similar patterns. So I, I, I just had to say that that's a totally fair observation, and it's one that, in general, I agree with with a lot of filmmakers. But yeah. with Reichardt specifically, I... I definitely think this feels, if not a culmination, definitely fully a Kelly Reichardt film in that it takes up on so many of the kind of thematic and craft threads of some of so much of her earlier work. Mm -hmm. um, I also just really have to, I, I feel like I should mention now, mm -hmm. um, the distance between me having seen this movie and me talking about this movie is probably longer than anyone else you've had on the podcast before. This was actually one of the last movies I saw in theaters before theaters shut down in Los Angeles, yeah. where they are still not reopened. Um, so I saw First Cow back in March. I haven't really been able to get it out of my head since. And you also but... you also have kind of a photographic memory compared to most of our usual guests. So I think I think you'll do okay. But I I understand if you're not going to have every little plot detail uh, uh, at the forefront of your head. Well, look, I mean, this is the the podcast your viewers have been waiting for since your first one. I know First Cow was the most highly anticipated podcast you, you've ever had. So. I, I know. We were joking a lot about that, but I do think there's like – I do think it got a little bit more play than like a lot of her movies do, it's, at least anecdotally yeah. as far as what I saw. Because the people like you that live in L.A. and, and people in New York, they, they might have gotten to see it in theaters, but no one else did. And then there just wasn't a lot of new stuff coming out because all the theaters just shut down for like – April and May, like no one was seeing anything at that point. And before they started slowly opening up again in the summer. So like there just wasn't any new stuff coming out beyond Netflix movies. So when this, when they did put this on, on streaming in May or June or something like that, I actually thought it got a decent amount of attention. I was pretty happy for, her. I mean, well, not yeah, that you also have to say that there, I mean, there are a lot of people who anything a 24 puts out, they will go see. So having the a 24 label attached to a Kelly Ray Hart movie didn't exactly hurt. Yeah, no, that 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 that's that's very true, and I think that might have been her. I think that was her first time working with him. I don't think certain. It was, yeah. yeah I don't think certain. So women certain women, I think, was I was Fox Searchlight. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't uh, good for her, and I, I I mean, not that I mean, I like a lot of A24 movies. I don't love every single one of them, but I I, I, I that's a better kind of a brand attachment, in my opinion, than people just watching stuff because it blindly blindly because it ends up on Netflix. Uh, though, if any of her movies do end up on Netflix, that'll be pretty huge because like. It'll, more people end up watching it than have seen any of them. But yeah, I do think it occupied an interesting place in the year. And who knows if like a bunch of movies roll over to next year, maybe she'll get a little more awards attention than she ever has before. So we'll see yeah, about there, that. There's, like I'm still riding somehow just the the first cow best picture train. Like I, I, I will I will fight for that Kelly Reichardt Oscar because I've never believed it will happen and this may be her only chance. And not to get too off the beaten path here, but you mentioned A twenty four. Like they're pretty good at marketing. Like I feel like they could get some pretty cool marketing campaigns involving the cow. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I will say, and this is actually, look, I love A24. Mm -hmm. um, I love so many of their movies. One problem I have with them is they're very selective about movies they give a real marketing push to. Mm -hmm. And I think First Cow, it definitely got more than it would have if it weren't an A24 movie. But it feels like one of those movies that because it wasn't able to kind of, it didn't have that viral quality. Mm -hmm. It wasn't it's not the type of movie that like was going to spread around through memes or like kind of have like aesthetic bros sharing screenshots from it all over. 
it 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 wasn't a type of movie they could give that like that level of push to. And I think High Life, another movie we covered, kind of fell into a similar problem, like niche of not being able to get that push. But yeah, I mean, if at the end of the year, who knows what the Oscar situation is going to be? Who knows what real contenders there are going to be? And who knows what the eligibility requirements mm-hmm. are going to be? If you know, if if First Cow's looking like a like a real option, who knows? Yeah, I, I don't I don't have their whole slate up in front of me, but I mean I know they got they still got Zola coming out, and they might have one other thing that could have is Minari is oh, that yeah Minari day twenty four that that'll yeah. probably get their they'll probably put a lot of the ships in that basket based on the reception yeah. it got at Sundance and all that I and mean, people are seeing it now at the virtual festivals and whatnot, but we'll see I, I I'll I'll be right there with you on the on the on the bandwagon uh, passenger seat in the in the train because uh, it would be very well deserved I guess what I want to ask you first about the yeah. movie is we're not going to do a spoiler section because I think the movie almost uh, jumps over that jumps over that hoop in the first five okay, minutes. I'm really glad because like I feel like so much of what I have to say about the movie, you need to talk about the ending. Yeah, and I but I also want to talk about the beginning and um, same difference. Yeah, exactly. And because there's, there's a very particular choice she makes, and now's your chance to jump out if uh, you, you don't want to hear the spoilers. You'll see the timestamp if you came here for Bill and Ted and ended up at a discussion about First Cow's awards chances. You can go look at the podcast description and jump to the timestamps. <laughs> So if I'm, if I'm going to give like a quick pre-spoilers blurb, just of like, for first cow, if I saw, I, I had the observation after I saw it, if I see nothing else this year, this will be a worthy best movie of 2020. It's a beautiful, thoughtful, investigative, and honestly gentle and really funny movie that deserves a lot of, it deserves more attention. It's um, beautifully put together. It's really thoughtful. And without spoiling anything right now, the comparisons to Parasite are not undeserved. That's uh, very well said, and uh, I would, I would uh, add that like I haven't actually like put together any kind of rankings or anything. It would certainly be in my top ten or five, five top five for the year. And I mean, I haven't really like never really sometimes always, which Ben and I also talked about uh, was our last podcast is was my number one up until I saw this, and um, I haven't really sat with it that long and to know anything but it would be right there for me and i would not be upset if it ended my ended the year in the top five so uh you can go away now because we're not going to really try and discuss this movie without talking about spoilers because there's a lot of choices that kind of just make that very hard to do so we're just going to jump in but i want to talk about the choice that she makes to just uh have these kind of bookend the movie in the way she does where you start out and you see alia shakwat's uh character walking around with her dog which a lot of people have identified as a bit of a callback to wendy and lucy and they end up she ends up discovering these these two skeletons she kind of just tells you how how your how your story is going to end right then and there and uh the final shot of the movie is obviously mirrors that and i want to know what your thought was on her using that as a framing device because i think there's a version of this movie and it's certainly uh, very sufficiently tense and the parasite comparisons are uh are not unwarranted but at the same time i feel like there's a version of this movie where you don't know where it's headed that's even almost a little more suspenseful because you don't know that it's going to end that way but the the choice that she makes to uh have the prologue of the movie end that way i think just kind of gives the whole entire movie its own other level of uh Fatalism. I don't know if that's. I don't know if that's the right word exactly. Or fatalism is a fair word for it. I mean, I, th- I think it's it's more complicated than that. But fatalism is definitely a fair word for it. And it's it's kind of the fatal the fatalist aspect of it mm-hmm. is this very sad reflection on that the the st- the world being what it is has forced these characters to this end. So, do you like that choice? Then I guess I mean you obviously I, love that movie. I absolutely loved it. It is one of my favorite. Like I have that that, that is kind of the. Th- 
the thing of the movie that I have not been able to stop thinking about. Okay. Because it is just so perfect. Because it's not just that, like, the the very last moment of the movie, mm-hmm. we see, we know that these two characters are being followed. And we see them just kind of lying on the ground, basically having this moment of reconciliation and friendship. And of, honestly, peace. And we see them lying in this position and then the movie ends. And what we're left with is this observation. How, like what, what position were they lying in? They were lying exactly like these, those two skeletons were placed in the beginning of the movie. And we don't see the moment of death. We don't see like them get caught. We don't see them die, but we're left on this gentle moment, but we know what happens to them. Mm-hmm. which is just first off so perfect and the fact that we like the the we know the movie opens with the skeletons of these two men buried and there is something in what Reichart finds valuable and important and her problem with what the world finds important and and those two things not being the same thing mm-hmm. and all basically all of the gentle moments between these characters, all of their dreams, all of their quiet moments of humanity, all of the quiet moments of beauty we experience with them are buried under the dirt of history. And what causes them to to be like, to end up like that is I think tied in with the movies somewhat critical portrayal of capitalism, which is when I say that, the comparisons to Parasite are not unwarranted. I'm not just talking about kind of structural. I'm talking about thematic. Because I think Parasite's a movie about family and capitalism, and this is one about friendship and capitalism. I'm I'm sorry. I must be. I I miss. I I was so off. But no. I mean, I think both movies have fairly anti-capitalist messages. Mm -hmm. And actually, something that occurred to me recently. And before I say this, I want to be clear. I love Parasite a lot. Like I, I gushed about it in the po- in the episode I did on it, and that has not changed. It, one of my favorite best picture winners ever. I I love Parasite. I love it so much. A friend of mine pointed out recently that it's hard. It was hard for her to embrace the movie as a radical call to arms and critique of the system that was so thoroughly embraced by the people it was quote unquote critiquing. Like she, she made the point that for her parasite winning best picture is on some level an indictment of parasite. And I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. It's interesting to think about. So a fair point and something we did say in, in, in like the episode we did on it is that it avoided, it, it was more about observation than strict didactic delivery of a message which I think is a point in Parasite's favor, but it also made it, I think makes it somewhat easy for pe- for kind of the people who Parasite might be critiquing to accept it as not about them. Um, and I'm going to get off this tangent of talking about Parasite because we don't need to do another episode on Parasite. But I think First Cow, it's another movie with a very anti-capitalist message, but a very different anti-capitalist message. Um, I think a lot of what par- of, of what First Cow centers on is the notion of property and the notion of 
ownership of property being more important than basically equal access to self-actualization. Like the entire structure of the West as this one character monopolizing access to this cow and its milk as a way to kind of have some sort of power or leverage or authority, that in itself... Well, sorry, finish. Sorry, you you, you were going to say? Well, I mean, I was going to say, I don't know if my thought was more cynical than that, but my thing was, it was was more just like about hoarding wealth to me than even exerting leverage over anyone else because he just wants to use the cow's milk only for his tea and for no other purpose. That's that's definitely a part of it. Right. But the other part of it is it's not just that he's the only one with that. Like it's, it's like he wants to be the have sole access to the cow. It's that he wants other people not to have that same access. His being able to use the milk for his tea, Yeah, that is a privilege and a sign of something. I can do something that other people cannot do. Right. I can provide you with something that other people cannot provide you with. Mm-hmm. Because I have sole control over this. The means this of production, yes. Yeah. I wanted to avoid saying that because it felt like too on the nose. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, that, that, it's that, not inaccurate. That's basically what it was. And I mean, that was a good point that you made about, like, I mean, in theory, like, yeah, they can really be self actualizing themselves as this business operation and finding their kind of meaning in life, but there's only really so far that can get them because of the, the resources are so scarce in this time. This is not a bootstraps-friendly movie. <laughs> no, no. Um, um, I do not believe Kelly Reichardt is a fan of Ayn Rand. <laughs> I, I, I would think not. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Like, we kept – you know, I hadn't even really been – I'm still almost processing it as we talk about all the different parallels to Parasite, which, I mean, I think came up a little bit in a couple of reviews I read, but I don't think I'd fully processed all the similarities. But at the same time – it's no secret that Bong Joon-ho has great affection for her. Like he like raved yep. about her on Specifically the Specifically fe- this movie too. Yeah. He like raved about her and raved about first cow. Like when he was doing the, making all the festival rounds last year. And, uh, it, it, these are, these are things that are like really on his mind. Um, and I think that's why he connects with it so much, even if it takes all the, the setting of like all of her movies are very far from soul, you know? And, uh, I, it, it, it's all right. It, it's all right there. And I, I just think the most impressive thing though, is that like, we've kind of talked about some serious stuff so far, um, that these, that these guys end up dead, that they, they should have eaten the rich, all that. But at, at the same time, I think it's like really impressive that she's able to like make a movie about all that stuff, but also like make a sweet movie about friendship at the same time. And oh, it's, it's like, a it's a fun, it's, gentle and lovely movie. It's an amazing feat that like all of that happens inside of everything that we just mentioned, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, like, I, I just kind of made, like, a weird little list of things that I, I would compare, like, First Cow to after I saw it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I mentioned was ASMR cooking videos. So I saw that, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's just because it's so gentle and peaceful. And it's, like, so much of the movie is focused on these quiet, gentle moments of contentment and humanity and and it's, friendship and beauty and all of the lovely, wonderful things. Spreading honey on biscuits. And and the fact is, to Reichart, those things are important. And it's not just like, oh, let me put those in there to kind of sort of like thrill the masses. It's like, no, to her, these kind of quiet, simple moments, there is real value in that. Mm-hmm. And that's it is a statement of purpose to kind of keep those moments in and to kind of 
orient so much of the movie around these really lovely moments. It's honestly, it's one of Reichardt's most pleasant movies. And, and I like Kelly Reichardt is one of my favorite filmmakers. Part of why I am so desperate for this movie to kind of get some sort of Oscar love is Kelly Ricard is very high on the list of filmmakers who we as American like film goers have failed. Because if you look at kind of the the 90s, 80s Sundance crew who broke out, Kelly Ricard had that early success that was supposed to kind of make her one of the big new filmmakers, and it never happened. And she's talked a lot about how the industry wasn't really willing to take a chance on her. And she has also talked a lot about how misogyny is factored into that. And it is worth reading Reichardt's accounts of trying to get films made and of her kind of struggles navigating the industry because it's really sad. And Yeah, she went 12, we, 12 years between features. River of Grass was yeah. 94 and Old Joy was 2006. Um, and I think part of what it is is a lot of... It, it, it's funny. We think of like the Coens and Paul Thomas Anderson as the best Sundance filmmakers. And this is no shade to either one, but it's not that they're the best. It's that they were the most commercially minded. Paul Thomas Anderson was able to have a long career because he made Boogie Nights. The Coens were able to have a long career because as quirky and idiosyncratic as their movies are, they're also movies that people felt, well, there's money there. And Reichardt's style was always quieter. It was always, I think, more sincere and more investigative. And I have, I'm just very sad that it took her as long as it did to kind of be able to establish this rhythm where she's now able to make films on a more frequent basis. Mm -hmm. Like she is at worst for like, for my money, the, the second greatest working American filmmaker. And I don't know. I just, it's, I, I'm really sad that she's never really gotten the recognition she's deserved. Oh, I, I agree. It's a, uh, I'm really, I, I mean, I hope she keeps getting to do this thing like every two or three years. Cause it's kind of crazy like that. I, I was just looking at her Wikipedia as you were talking about. And I like, she didn't make a movie between the ages of 30 and 42, which I mean, yeah. it, it seems like that's kind of like the prime of like a lot of people's careers. So, I mean, it speaks to the fact that like she's in her fifties now and she still puts out something as incredible as first Cal. Like I think she obviously has a lot more left in her if she, if she, if she wants it, you know? So, no, I mean, we, we've been like, the, the, the joke for a long time of First Cow, highly anticipated and all that, there's a reason why we have been talking about this movie for as long as we did. It's because of who Reichardt is as a filmmaker, and I think how much we both think she deserves that level of recognition. Um, and at a certain point, it kind of became a joke, but, you know. Yeah, I know, and, and, and like, I was worried it wasn't going to live up to it. Like, I mean, like, I, I, I feel yeah, like I was, like... It, it, look, any movie you're looking forward to for that long... And, like, totally unironically, I know we've both been looking forward to this movie for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it really did live up to it. And, like, I... The best thing I can say about a movie like this is it not only did it live up to the hype, it wasn't necessarily what I quote-unquote expected it to be. Um, because, yes, it was... First Cow was very distinctly a Kelly Reichardt movie, mm -hmm. but I wasn't expecting it to be so funny. I wasn't expecting. I don't. I wasn't expecting all of these weird, quiet moments of kind of observation of like the relationships between like 
Native Americans and like settlers and kind of the U.S. Chinese dynamics, which I'm not going to get into, but Asian American critics have written some really interesting things about the way the movie presents kind of U.S. kind of Chinese relations. And it's it's really interesting stuff that I recommend giving a read if you can. But yeah. Yeah, there's just, like, so much interesting stuff in this movie. And, that, like, these two characters are very, very different people. And, yeah. I mean, in a, in a way that would you could understand why they would be good friends and that they kind of complement each other in ways that would, you know, help each other out if you're trying to kind of accomplish some common goal. Like, someone that, you know, has the aspiration aspirations of uh, King Lou but has the technical know-how of someone like uh, Cookie. And they are both, like, at least kind uh, people that are going to see that in each other. But, uh, you know, it was really fun just watching uh, King Lou, who was played by Orion Lee, who I really enjoyed watching. Uh, it was fun watching that character navigate this movie in that uh, he moves with, like, such a confidence that you wouldn't necessarily expect a foreigner to in that time in America. But at the same time, he has to kind of, like, fade to the background when he's in scenes with, like, a lot of white people. And he's there, and it. I guess it kind of can work. To you could. Say, there's obviously a lot of instances in that in which that would honestly hold him back in that country, but probably it allows him to like, you know, accomplish more when people aren't looking. And it was it was interesting to see just how people of that time in that space might regard someone like him. And I there's like a lot of just little subtle things you can you can pick up on just with the the way the the camera moves around in that scene in the chief factor's house uh, when he's there and trying to make his voice heard. And they just they they kind of just like ignore him and they yeah. kind of go back on with what they're doing. And it just says a and and at the same time. Uh, uh, the the chief's wife is played by Lily Gladstone, who, if anyone saw Certain Women, oh knows is great, and she gets to she gets a really good she she gets to be a part of that really incredible scene in that house, and where there's yeah, just I, like I a have lot to going give on. A quick plug to that, just because like I I can't not talk about Lily Gladstone when you bring her up. Mm -hmm. One of the greatest performances of like the last decade for me. It makes me sad just thinking about Certain Women because of her, and oh, I made that as a compliment. Yeah, Kelly Rickard, for anyone listening who hasn't seen it, Kelly Rickard's last movie before First Cow was a movie called Certain Women that is just extraordinarily beautiful and human and perfect. And it's a, it's a triptych, and the protagonist of one of the segments is kind of played by Lily Gladstone, who is a, a Native American actress. And her performance in that movie is just quietly devastating and lived in and, like yearning and sad in, in just so many amazing ways. Like it's, it is to me one of the great performances of the 2010s. That performance alone is like enough to cement both her and Kelly Rickard as amazing. I, I totally agree. And I, and if, if you need more of a sell than just uh, one actress that you've probably never heard of, but you should hear of that a uh, certain woman also has Michelle Williams, Laura Dern and Kirsten Stewart. It's kind of a flex for her to get like a whole boatload of stars like that. But she discovered like a newcomer too. That was very incredible. And I'm shocked that like Lily Gladstone hasn't been in a bunch of other stuff I've seen in the last yeah. three years uh, since then, but hopefully that'll get fixed soon. Yeah, it's also worth mentioning just because I am going to keep plugging Kelly Rickard as much as I can because, <laughs> oh, my God, people need to see more of her movies. Um, if you're a fan of Michelle Williams, mm -hmm. all of Michelle Williams' best work has been with Kelly Rickard. Yeah, she does Venom so she can go off and hang out with Kelly Rickard in Montana. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, like between certain women, Meek's Cutoff and Wendy and Lucy – if I'm looking for, like, maybe her three best performances, that's pretty much what I'd go to. Honestly, number four might be I Feel Pretty, the best comedic performance of 2018. 
I'm going to have to take your word on that one. <laughs> it's just kind of funny because she's like obviously doing like very intense stuff in all the Kelly record movies. And uh, I feel pretty. It's just a, an okay Amy Schumer rom-com. But like Michelle Williams is like shows that she ever wanted to be the best comedic actress working. She could do it. Uh, that's what she does in that movie. Uh, but but yeah, uh, to, to get back to it, I uh, I just I think it, it's really impressive that in addition to like all the really impressive uh visual stuff that we sh- that happens on outside in this movie like she has like some really tense scenes that happen in when you go indoors but also i mentioned at the beginning how they you see these two skeletons and it kind of tells you where the film's headed but at the same time there's like a lot of really impressive ways where she does ratchet up suspense out oh, of yeah. like small moments when chief factor just like even first says something like my cow's not making a lot of milk and just like what that statement even means in the context of the whole movie or something like him just showing up and just like even you're worried he's going to like taste his milk in their biscuits or, or or just that entire I mean literally that entire scene in his house like there's just so many other smaller moments with this in this movie where it's like you already know things are going to end badly for these guys but at the same time like you're still on the edge of your seat wondering like where it's going to happen which for like just a movie about like on the surface, if you give the one second, the one sentence synopsis wouldn't sound like that, like that much of a thriller or suspense or something in the mold of, I don't know, like more, more like night moves. Uh, I mean, it, it creates as many of those kind of moments as any of her movies do. Yeah. No, it, it's like Reichhart controls tone and tension pretty brilliantly. Um, and again, it's despite the movie having this overall really gentle tone. Um, there are these moments of very real tension and, but it's part of it is they never, they never feel contrived or controlled or forced. And again, there, there is room for basically the tense set piece, but basically everything that comes about in this movie arises very naturally, um, and very naturally out of the character's circumstances and the character's actions and just who these people are. Um, and that actually gets at one of the things I love about Rick Hart and one of the things I like about her in this movie. Um, very similar to kind of Claire Denis, who's another filmmaker we've talked about. She is very investigative. Um, Kelly Rick Hart isn't a filmmaker who goes into a scene or a shot or a moment with the answer in mind. She is willing to cast a wide and exploratory lens and trust that something beautiful and something unique will come out of it. Um, and part of that, I think, is in how she uses the camera. Um, like, I know she's a pretty hardcore cinephile. Like, she's a film professor. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the directors she's talked about as a major influence is Kenji Mizuguchi, um, who I, I don't know if you've seen any of his stuff, but he's a pretty strong contender for, like, the great Japanese filmmaker. Hmm. Um, like if, if, if you've seen a movie by him and I really recommend seeing this movie by him, it would probably be Ugetsu, but he's very famous for his tracking shots. Um, like he has these very slow and gentle tracking shots across the world that, you know, people compare to kind of the unfolding of a scroll, but the actual effect of that is he presents his characters in this larger world. And kind of presents them as figures exploring this world in the same way that he, that the camera is meant to be doing. And it kind of very much gets us into the mindset of searching for these kind of smaller and idiosyncratic 
moments rather than looking for the absolute meaning of the shot. Well, I want to ask you. I don't. I don't know if that's the. If it's the best transition, but I, one thing I was yeah. going to ask you was. Well, it, it, it might kind of relate to what you just said, but I, I was thinking about it after I read what you did write on Letterbox, and you wrote that what, you kind of mentioned the ASMR baking. But one other uh, the comp- point of comparison you mentioned in that review was McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yes. Which, which I which I actually watched for the first time about a month ago. So I, it was good timing there. But I. Uh, you're talking about just like investigating different corners of a world. And I'm still have a lot of what Robert Altman to watch myself, even though I've watched a decent amount of it in quarantine. I feel like that's something that seems like he does a good job of in all of his movies is just creating a long, a, a, just a big world where he gets to, you go into a lot of different corners of it. And oh, I, and I think the, the, the big thing about McCabe and Mrs. Miller for me was that I kind of thought it was about, it was a Western about characters that, almost didn't know they were in a Western. Whereas like a lot of other movies, it's like the, the characters know all the rules of the Western and you're, you're just dropped right into it with them. And I was curious, like, cause McCabe and Mrs. Miller, I mean, it, it's also Pacific Northwest. It's, it takes place about 80 years after the events of this movie, but I mean, I did feel some other similarities. So what did you have? Did, does it have anything to do with what you were, the point you were just making before, or did you have something else on your mind when you kind of like just made that statement? Cause I, I felt some kind of, some kind of parallels when I, when I read your review. Yeah, sort of. So it, more of what it gets to is what we were talking about earlier of Reichhardt privileging these kind of quiet human moments. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, the thing with McCabe and Mrs. Miller is context with that movie is super important. Like it came out at a time where kind of Westerns, as they were popular, popularly accepted, were either like kind of classic Hollywood, John Ford, Howard Hawks, or spaghetti Westerns. And what was interesting about McCabe and Mrs. Miller is – it's a Western that almost exists in parallel to the Western. It's like the moments that are privileged are these kind of quiet human moments, kind of it, it's character and softness and intimacy, just kind of, and, and what I observed about First Cow was that Reichhardt was privileging these kind of very quiet, human, intimate moments. And again, both movies were very conscious about making the choice that, no, these are the things we think are important. That That's kind of what I was getting at with the comparison. Gotcha. I like what you said about the, just the those human moments that you think are really important, because at one point I was watching the movie and I was like, at one point I thought to myself, yeah, you know what? I don't really know what Cookie's getting out of this friendship at a certain point. And I think it was one of the times where he's milking the cow and uh king louis is sitting up in the tree i'm like man he's taking like most of the risk here and he could probably like he probably could strike up some kind of deal with chief factor on his own and just work for him as his baker and probably do okay like i don't really know if he's getting a lot out of this friendship and then i kind of like thought back to the the movie just like how those fur trappers just treated him like shit and how you know no one necessarily has to get anything uh has to get anything tangible in a friendship sometimes all all it really needs is someone to appreciate you for what you for just appreciate you for you and because that's certainly not something he was getting out of these guys he was working for at the beginning and i i think that's why he had such a he was so drawn to king lou in the first place was that like oh wow here's some guy that just kind of sees value in me and i think that's something that like you know kelly Riker sees value in me and what i care about and just who i want to be yeah exactly and i think I don't know. Right. And I think it's, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, old joys, it's a movie about like the, the end of a friendship. And I mean, we see the entire, uh, we see the the entirety of a friendship here, but it's, uh, we, we get to actually see one starting and she's really good at depicting that. Yeah. I mean, she's, it's funny. Like 
Kelly Rickhart is a very distinctly feminist filmmaker, and she's talked about that on many occasions. Mm -hmm. She is as good, if not better, than anyone at depicting male friendships mm -hmm. and depicting the complexities and, at times, problematic dynamics of male friendships. Like Old Joy, it is still one of the truest and most meaningful depictions of a friendship that I've seen on film. And just, it, again, it captures not just kind of the bullet points of it, but kind of the smaller moments that actually color it. And, and I think First Cow very much does the same thing. But yeah, it's, just, it's, it's something that she is really good at. And uh, so much of it comes down to performance. Mm -hmm. But as we kind of talked about with Lily Gladstone and Michelle Williams, Kelly Ricard is very good at getting great but understated performances out of her actors. Agreed. Did, did you want to put on your uh, technical hat at all? Was there anything you wanted to really focus on or uh, highlight in the movie from a technical perspective? I know that might be one of the harder things to do when you haven't seen it in a while, unless any real image kind of stuck with you. But as I was kind of reading about it, I, I mean, I read a lot about the uh, Academy aspect ratio and educated yeah. myself on that a little bit. But also, I mean, she obviously just knows this terrain very well. She spent a ton of time in Oregon. So I, it's not surprising she could show us just a lot, a lot of a beautiful, just a lot of beautiful shots in general. But uh, was there anything that really stuck with you visually that you wanted to highlight before we wrapped up? Yeah. I mean, technical hat, I'm not going to go too much into yeah. that other than to say everything was perfect. <laughs> um, no, it was just, it was a really beautiful movie. It was cut very smoothly. And again, the like editing in many cases can be about finding just this musical balance between fast and slow, but like what is the rhythm of this moment? And so much of what we're talking about with kind of Reichardt's control of tone comes down to the pace of the editing. Mm -hmm. um, and again, if that's off, we don't get that gentle quality. It doesn't have that almost like the, the, the word that I think of a lot with this and like I'm there is no way I'm going to pronounce this right because it is in Danish hmm. is this concept of Hugo, which through my terrible pronunciation <laughs> is basically just this feeling of contentment and comfort that is basically a meaningful social value in Denmark. Like it's actually an important, and there's this notion that it is something that everyone deserves access to this feeling of contentment and comfort, which I think is act like it's kind of a meaningful social statement, not just that everyone deserves the right to live. Everyone deserves the right to feel content and comfortable and safe. Um, and it's something that it's a term that has been kind of appropriated by like people who are way into way too into Tumblr, quote unquote, aesthetics. <laughs> um, but it's something that's very interesting. And I think this movie, there is this feeling of Hugo and this feeling of these characters wanting that and it being important. And so much of that is driven by the editing hmm. because uh, like a moment of like spreading of the honey. It's like, Oh, in, in any other movie, it's like, okay, someone is spreading honey, but the way that moment is paced, it becomes something more peaceful. And visually, I mean, the movie is, it's beautifully shot. All of Kelly Rickard's movies are really beautifully shot. Um, I like, it's been too long for me to remember what this was shot on. I don't believe it was digital just from my re recollection of it. It definitely, I don't think it was digital. But the one visual moment that I keep coming back to is the first heist. 
the first time they steal the cow. Hmm. And there is something about the way the moonlight looks in that moment that is just perfect. Well, actually, one thing I wanted to ask you, because I reading one of the – or it was actually reading this back-and-forth interview The Atlantic did with her and Bong Joon-ho was uh, I learned a new term today, which was shooting day for night. Yeah. And I don't know I, – I, they, didn't, they didn't go into a lot of detail on all of the scenes that did that. I know the, they did in the one where uh, they, the, the, uh, Cookie and King Lou meet for the first time. That was day for night. But I, I didn't know if that was something that – I wanted to ask you about that and if that was something that you, you picked up on or you read about or had any thoughts on how it did that because that was something I found really interesting because it was just something I didn't know about before. And it's – given that how much of this film actually does kind of uh, – a decent amount of this film does take place at night, I found that pretty interesting. Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, first off, highly recommend the movie Day for Night. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's not something I knew. Yeah, the one to be an asshole, I would bluff and say, "Oh yeah, I knew that was Day for Night." <laughs> um, but no, I mean it's it's interesting because something I do know is it like it's something that's become a lot less quote unquote trendy. And I know like some film people I've worked with who talk about day for night as this like retro shooting style. Hmm. But first off, practically speaking, it does make things a lot easier. Um, and it does allow you to have a little more control over shooting schedule. To me, it's not like a really specific look of something like that, that I'd find especially relevant, but practically speaking, it can make the actual shoot a lot less painful so yeah that's that's kind of what i would have to say about that but well well i think i think they made really good use of it and um because all just every like you said every scene looks great uh one other point i wanted to make just because just we 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 talked about a lot of this uh stuff about the economics of the movie at the beginning but one thing i thought was really cool when i was going back and thinking about it was you know they're getting they're being followed at the end by the guy who actually i guess works for chief factor but he's 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 one of the last ones in line that misses out on one of the biscuits earlier in the morning earlier in the movie not to belabor its uh similarities to parasite but like you know in parasite it's it's not the people that are necessarily taking anyone out uh for lack of a better term it, it it's it's the it's the two poor families that are kind of each other that are each other's downfall and they end up fighting it out and here where one of the guys i mean he, he probably doesn't kill these people if he doesn't happen to work for chief factor but at the same time he's he's kind of left like missing out on the scraps earlier in the movie and it's 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 him that ends up actually uh taking the two guys out and i think that that in of itself is just like a pretty uh interesting choice that the story makes that i that 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 kind of resonated with me as i went back and thought about it to think like look i mean in theory all of you should just be uh i don't want to say eat the rich again but all all of you guys are directing all of your anger to the wrong places and uh all these people that are the, the poor people are unfortunately kind of left to uh left to scrap it out and that's really unfortunate and unfortunately also a little too timely for a movie that took place 200 years in the past and it's something i'm probably going to be thinking about more so than a lot of the stuff in this movie well the the other thing about that is he, this guy is basically being forced to eliminate something that he wanted mm-hmm. he like if when he kills these two he won't be able to eat their their desserts again right um, and there is something that, like one of the things that I think is so effective about both first cow and parasite, mm-hmm. it's not about, uh, rich people, bad, poor people, good. It's like, it, it is about the systems and the structures of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And in this case, the structure of capitalism and basically his employment with this kind of powerful economic figure 
is forcing him to, in some ways, act against his own interests. Yeah. Um, and that, to me, is what's really interesting about that moment. It's like if you actually ask this character, okay, what, what, like, what do you want? What, like, what are the things you want? What would make you happy? Like, and you actually map out: Will killing these people ultimately is this something you want to happen? The answer would probably be no. Mm-hmm. He would want, like, he would want them to be alive. He would want them to be to to be able to eat their their food. But the realities of the world don't allow him that choice. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's sad. And that's kind of the part of the fatalist edge of the movie as beautiful and lovely as it is. And also just how depressing it is that this is kind of the Oregon territory in its beginnings. And it's supposed to be something new that people like the folks in Meek's cutoff, they travel, they travel out this way to like find something new and to get a fresh start, probably free from a lot of the, uh, things that might have held people back in wherever they came from, and it's it's kind of telling that like these different these different pillars of capitalism are already present at the very beginning of something. Like yeah. it's like rigged from the very beginning in a way that's like kind of depressing when this is supposed to be the exciting new frontier for so many. Well, and one of the things is this movie, as much as it is a heist movie, and it's definitely a heist movie, mm-hmm. as much as it is a drama and a comedy, it's like it's all of these things. It is also a western, mm-hmm. and one of the things that is unique about the Western as a genre is this notion that it is something stripped down, that you are basically reducing everything to this blank slate that allows you to kind of explore these larger ideas through a smaller and more intimate compass, uh, through a smaller and more intimate lens. And so this is the beginning of America. Mm-hmm. The Like the problematic aspects of the structures in this movie, they don't go away. They just get bigger. The foundation itself is rotten. There are skeletons buried in it. That's a, that's a pretty f- unfortunately fitting note to wrap this movie up on. But did you have any other final thoughts you wanted to or points you wanted to make before we moved on to face the music? Um, one thing, like as much as we're talking about like Oscars for this movie, the one that like if Toby Jones doesn't get nominated, I will be upset. Okay, so you you were, you were that impressed by him? I re- I really was. It was. Again, it was understated, but there was just this level of depth beneath the surface in his character in, in, in his character that I really loved. Um, it, it's my favorite performance from him that I can remember. Yeah, you, again, you, you like, can you can really feel how that guy is like yearning to f- feel like an English upperclassman. Yeah. Um. Again, it's like I, I want Oscars for everything in this movie, <laughs> but it's like if I'm. If I'm going to kind of just default to one, like if it's okay, if, it's, if it only has a real chance at this, like let's just go all in on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, all the performance in this movie really work. And we didn't even really talk about just this, the ensemble. Um, because outside of kind of the performances we've talked about, it also has just this really like strange and interesting cast of like kind of frontier weirdos. Yeah, we didn't um, we didn't mention uh, Rene Ajabrana, but I, I don't know if I yeah. screwed up his last name. But uh, oh, you you definitely did. But I also would do the same thing if I tried to pronounce it. So he yeah he's we, he, we both suck. He's like the third lead in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. We didn't even mention that, and he's just here as like a, a fly on the wall, and it, she just populates the movie with folks like that that can kind of slide into this world. But yeah, but again, all of them feel fleshed out and interesting and unique and compelling, mm-hmm. which is not easy to do. Um, and again, it just makes the world feel more fleshed out and lived in. But yeah, like I, like again, I saw this movie back in March. Um, but it is really such a beautiful 
sad but brilliantly made movie. Um, and again, we talked about the ending at the beginning, mm -hmm. but it is one of my favorite endings in a long time, just because it is the perfect mix of tying everything up and total anticlimax. Yeah, you don't, um, you don't, you don't need to see them actually get shot. No. Like it's, 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 it's smarter the way she does it. Um, it's smarter and ultimately sadder because it lets us, it lets us do the work. We know what happens, and that like knowing it but not seeing it almost makes it sadder. Yeah, and it, it really is brilliant in that like I mean just the, like you said the position that they are found in that just says the fact that King, uh, King Lou probably could have just left him, which is a point someone made in a review I yeah. read that he chose he chose maybe he didn't know they were being tailored right at that point, but he could have he, he knows. His, but he's his, also the the kind of the more pragmatic character in the movie who right. would normally think like why would I bog myself down? Yeah, and if, and, and if nothing else, he knows his odds of survival are probably better if he yeah. doesn't if he doesn't take a nap and he stays with them, and that says so much about their friendship that we watch built throughout the movie, but we also. Talk talked about just the 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 the, mecha the mechanism that is implied for how they uh, the mechanism of death that is implied for them uh we've already talked about just what that means and it's like a very succinct understated way of like tying the entire movie up it's really really smart yeah i, I cannot recommend it enough yeah i mean i doubt i doubt anyone uh listened to this point if they hadn't seen it but if you we'll just implore you to tell your friends to go watch it even more so than you already have to this point if you if you, anyone actually is still listening so uh but yeah we're gonna move on uh to, to the movie uh, that people have probably seen or, 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 or yeah, to the it's just a just a hop, skip, and a jump away from the subject matter of First Cow, and that is Bill and Ted Face the Music. It is the third movie in the series of Bill and Ted movies that started in 1989 with Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and continued in 1991 with Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey as uh, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter play uh, Theodore. Uh, Pre, uh, Theodore Preston. Bill S. Preston Bi and Theodore Logan. Bill S. Preston. Oh, come on, and, Josh. These are our national heroes. Bill S. Preston, Esquire, and Esquire. Thank you very much. You yeah. know, I'm not even. I mean, I should be offended by that as a, as an actual Esquire. Uh, but and, and uh, Bill S. Uh, Alex Winters, Bill S. Preston, Esquire, and Keanu Reeves. Is Ted Theodore Logan. They we followed them as young men in the first two movies, uh, who were you know just out there trying to make music and change the world and we were told that they were going to change the world with their music uh, and we pick up with them in present day uh, and they had a little bit of success with their band Wild Stallions and but they never quite changed the world like they were told they were going to by the folks that visited them from the future and now uh, the entire world is collapsing on itself they receive a visit from their their old friend, uh, the daughter of their old friend Rufus, because unfortunately George Carlin's no longer with us. Uh, his daughter is Kelly, played by Christian Shaw, tells them, look, you guys need to get this song done in the next hour and a half or the world's going to end. And they decide, OK, well, we aren't we can't we aren't capable of doing this right now. We need to go steal the song from our future selves. And they have they're kind of caught in a little bit of a, you know, uh, journey that they go on trying to deal with their future selves who are nowhere near as uh uh, things have not worked out for them like they had hoped, but at the same time, they actually have daughters that they have named after. They have each named after the other who ended up exactly like them, and decide that they need to help their dads by going back into the past and creating a kick-ass band. Ben, I where I want to start with this is that I, even though we never talked about a comedy on the podcast, and I know you're someone that doesn't not enjoy comedic movies, we've just never talked about them. But at the same time, I've never really talked with you about why you like any comedy. But also, I'm sometimes hesitant to just talk about comedies on the podcast at all. You know, comedy is very subjective. It's hard for someone to really explain why they find something funny. But I'm still going to ask you the difficult question anyway of like, 
why this was a movie you even wanted to talk about in the first place. Because at first I thought maybe it was a joke when you said, hey, I want to talk about Face the Music. I'm like, well, maybe he's just like making a joke. And you're like, no, I'm serious. So that's to say, I'm sure there's other comedies you've enjoyed in in your time besides the first two Bill and Ted movies. So before we get to discussing this one, I want to know what it is that makes the first two Bill and Ted movies even have a fond place in your heart. Yeah, and it's, I feel like just because of the rest of the stuff that I like, mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes when I bring up the fact that, no, I legitimately really like the first two Bill and Ted movies, mm-hmm. and they have a very, like, real special place in my heart and in my childhood, sometimes people think I'm joking. I am not joking. But but it's not, um, it's not even just because I think of you as someone that's like— No, this isn't just you. This is like— No, 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 but, like, yeah. I, I know you're not someone that only likes the kind of things we talk about on this podcast. I know there are other comedies you enjoy, but I'm curious particularly, like, why Bill and Ted really yeah. no, means no, no, something I, to you. I'm getting that. It's just, I, yeah. I had to give that caveat. Right, it's right. Like, no, this, this comes up so often. <laughs> it's like every time I bring up that, like, no, I legitimately really like these movies, <laughs> people think I'm joking. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe that's how I present myself. <laughs> and, uh, too late to change now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, here's the thing. Like, especially, mainly the first one. I, Bill, I, I, I like Bill and Ted's bogus journey a lot, but Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure for me was a very special movie when I was a kid. Um, I have a list of my great movies that it's like, it's modeled after like Roger Ebert's great movies list. The first Bill and Ted is not on that list, but if I were to make a list of great kids' movies... Um, basically of movies that like every child should be shown. Mm-hmm. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is one of the first ones on that list. For me, there is a lot in that movie especially that is not just well executed and fun, but actually really imaginative and creative and kind of wild. Like it's not just, oh, they go to the future and like they and it's like a place and they're celebrated. The portrayal of the future in that movie blew my mind as a kid because it's like this really weird kind of like hard rock fantasia where it's like rock saves the world and you have this kind of ethereal rock music playing all throughout clarence clemens is the president (laughs) yes and it's like this is this is the future this is amazing like very sincerely seeing like the future as presented in those movies blew my mind as a kid And the other thing is I really like history. Mm -hmm. I like history a lot. The way the movie makes history feel both lived in and personal and intimate, but also just kind of wild and relatable. And and fun. Yeah. It's fun. It's really fun. And it like, it gets that right in a way that I think other movies that have tried that don't for me. Like even as like as a kid, the scene where like Joan of Arc comes to the future and like sees the things that like she can do now. It's like, I, there was something about that moment that was special because it's like, Oh wait, like as a kid, it's like, wait, Joan of Arc was a person, a person. She was a teenage girl. And it's like that moment where she kind of comes to the future. And it's like, she's in awe of everything. It's like, that was such a weird relatable moment. Cause it's like, just as a kid, it's like, Oh wait, Joan of Arc, was a teenage girl. She's not just this like phantom historical quote unquote important figure. She was a teenage girl. And that way of making history feel both exciting and fun, but also really accessible. That's something the movie just gets right. Um, And also just the joy of just as someone who likes history, 
the joy of being able to kind of just like travel through history on a phone booth. Um, I don't know. It's I've never been the biggest fan of Doctor Who, but there is something about the way this movie got it that I don't know. It just it really clicked as a kid. And I also have to say, you know, George Carlin. Um, George Carlin in those first two movies was just so perfect. Mm-hmm. And he, he again, he was this strange future father figure who not only who you want to believe in you, because again, as like unworth it as Bill and Ted seem like the, like they do not seem like people who are going to save the world. You know, you want a George Carlin to believe in you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't know. So there was just something about, even as much of like a, a coming of age comedy as it was, there was just a lot about the first two movies that I think felt different and felt a little more imaginative and kind of creatively anarchic. Yeah, you know, it's funny you said that you would put it on the list of all, any movie that kids should watch because I think most kids do see it as I did on a day where you had a substitute teacher in history class in middle school or high school. So that is I, so I saw it with my dad. Oh, okay. Well, that 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 that's that's a good way to watch it too. So, but I hadn't seen it since then. Like I remember being fond of the movies, but I saw them like literally in like maybe like tenth grade AP World History class when we had a a substitute or something. And I remember really enjoying them and just never really revisiting them. And I, I, they always, I, I always had fond memories of watching them, but just when I realized I was new to this podcast, I was like, you know, it'd probably be interesting to go back and rewatch those first two for the first time since I was 15 years old, like almost half my life ago. And I, I was like worried, Oh, maybe these aren't going to hold up. And like, I really liked excellent adventure a lot, uh, even on the rewatch. And I, some of it's just like uh, the really basic stuff. Like you're, I'm never not going to laugh whenever they say Socrates like I'm just I'm just not like I, I can't help it but like I don't know why I just find that so funny or, or beef oven or things like that like those are those easy jokes are always going to make me laugh but I think there is very really something to it where it's just a really cool way to personalize history that so often is only accessible to us just through our class books uh, there's another there's another thing about it too and this is something I definitely want to get to now and mm-hmm. who knows it might come up later there is something beautifully mythic about the idea that you know as much of like a loser as you are you are capable of making a song that can save the world mm-hmm. it's a it's a fantasy and it's like you don't have to dive into the, oh well you know would it really save the world the point is it does like the movie presents it as the rea- like the reality of yes this song saved the world this song made this future and there is something really kind of inspiring about that as a kid. It's a total fantasy, and it's like I knew it was a fantasy as a kid, but it's something you want to believe in. Well, it's also interesting that you make that point because yeah, as, as Face the Music. I, I So I, I was wondering when you were going to transition into that. Well, so, you know, I actually liked half of this movie. And normally if a movie is going to go through the effort of you know, especially like 20, 29 years later, going back to like make a third, you you got to think like, oh, they're going to have like a really good idea if they find this thing even worth doing, putting in all the effort to get this made. Is I, from what I understand, it was a real journey to get this. No, no pun intended. It was no, it was a real journey to get this movie made. Oh yeah. Um, and I didn't, I honestly didn't find the Bill and Ted half of this movie really all that uh, interesting. And like, yeah, it, it's it's worth mentioning that 
you know, you, you tend to bring me on from movies I'm excited about. Yes. Like, just because of the nature of it, partially, it's, you know, it's the stuff that a lot of the time, it's stuff that other people don't necessarily want to be on for. Mm -hmm. But they're generally movies that either I've been excited about for a long time or I've, like, really raved about. Mm -hmm. Or maybe, like, because I live in L.A., I got to see it early and, like, got to see it with the filmmaker, like, see it with a filmmaker. But somehow, every single movie you've had me on for is a movie that I, at the very least, liked a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is the first time you've had me on to talk about a movie that I hated. That just ruined your childhood. <laughs> I hated this movie so oh, much. It oh, was man. So I, I, didn't, I didn't realize you were going to come in that hot. Um, yeah, um, it is the worst movie I've seen in a long time. And very specifically because it actually throws away a lot of what made those first two movies so special and unique. Well, you know, the thing is, like, it's sad, but, like, I, I, I kind of assumed I was going to enjoy the part of the movie more that tried to do something a little new. And I kind of just enjoyed the daughters going I back. Agree, totally. I, the, the daughters going back and doing what they did is really just a ripoff of the first movie. But I like that half of the movie a lot better. And I, yeah. and I think part of the oh, – one thing I, I should have mentioned when we were talking about Excellent Adventure was that because of all those things it does so well – that we talked about, you don't get too bogged down in the minutia of time travel and movies about that deal with time travel really vary really wildly as to like how caught up they can get in their own bullshit and how in their up their own ass they can get and like dealing with all the different intricacies of how the, how it actually functions in practice. I, I really like to, uh, I, I talked about this with, uh, our friend Hannah earlier this year when we did the Palm Springs podcast. I like how that movie just kind of jumped over a lot of the time travel, uh, science of it in a really smart way. And I respect when movies can do that. And I, it doesn't really necessarily do away with the mechanics of, Oh, you can, you'll, you'll change this if you do that in Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. But the rest of the movie is so strong that you don't really care about that stuff. And in face the music, it, I, I think it kind of drops the ball in that regard on the Bill and Ted half of the movie where I don't really think anything that they do is all that funny or all that interesting. And thus you're just kind of left thinking about the time traveling that they're doing. And that's the worst part of thing a time travel movie can do, in my opinion. Whereas like with the daughters, it was wholly unoriginal, but there are at least some fun moments, even if that was literally them just playing the hits. Wait, are, are you telling me you didn't like Kid Cudi showing up to give a totally like generic and not entirely well executed lecture on quantum physics i mean like i'm not one to uh critique anyone's understanding of quantum physics so i will withhold judgment but i don't know if anyone can no, actually like the, the like the actual reality of it aside just the execution of it it just it didn't work it no. wasn't funny first of all and but i i, sh- I should also just have to say like just because you brought it up i have so many problems with the the way palm springs handled time travel at the end oh but oh, really yeah Okay. Um, there, first off, there is a massive like hole, like plot plot hole in the kind of the, the time travel thing that I wouldn't care about unless they made the effort to try to explain like the science of it. Like just again, if if like if not for that, I'd totally be willing to let it all go. Don't ruin, because, don't, don't ruin Palm Springs for me. Come on, don't 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 don't. Let's not go there. <laughs> at, at some point in the podcast, you're gonna piss me off, and I'm gonna I'm gonna like uh, give you this feel, and you're never oh, gonna be able to think. Uh, about no, anymore. don't do it. It's, it's in my top ten of the year right now. I don't don't do it. Um, for, for now, I'll hold off. Um, okay. But yeah, no, that God, like I. So I, I first of all, I really have to agree that. I, I did not like as many problems as I had with the stuff involving the daughters. It was so much better than everything involving Bill and Ted. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think the movie would have been better if it just centered on them the whole time. Mm. But again, it was just playing the hits. My problem was it didn't necessarily play the hits very well. It didn't have the same 
like kind of spark. It didn't feel like very meaningful portraits of these historical figures. But at the same time, like I at least I, I was able to kind of get back into that same childhood feeling during those scenes because like it at least brought me back to that feeling of like the excitement of traveling through history and meeting these like also I'm a jazz nerd so throwing for, well first of all I agree on it not being that funny at all the, the, the one thing that really gets me in these movies besides the funny wordplay like Socrates or Beethoven is like just just the the um the undercutting of our understanding of some of these historical figures where like yeah. Napoleon being a goofball that likes to go to a water park, even though we know him as like an actual serious general or something like that. So I, I, I didn't really actually love, I mean, I was pretty yeah. mixed on this one. was just Oh wow. Jimi Hendrix. Oh well, wow. Louis Armstrong. Well, I was, well, I was mixed on bogus journey, but I really enjoyed the William Sadler's death who comes back yeah. here. Like this, the seemingly serious guy that gets won over by Bill and Ted's goofiness, like that stuff won't not work for me. So I actually really enjoyed like Anthony Kerrigan's Dennis in this movie. Like I thought I like that. It's easy See, laughs. I, I, I really didn't. And I like, I love Barry. I yeah, love yeah, Anthony yeah. Kerrigan. Yeah. Just the entire concept for that character was terrible. I don't know that this, the, I, I, I can't even disagree with the concept. It makes no sense. Like, they're going to kill them because that will restore the balance, even though like they need the song from him. Like it doesn't actually make any sense what he's doing, but I, I, I at least not even, no, I'm not even talking about like his, his role in the plot. Oh. I'm talking about, Oh, he's a robot named Dennis. And he wants to remind people that his name is Dennis. And that he's and a all of these, like, like I get they were trying to make this kind of idiosyncratic quirky character. It really didn't come together very well. Um, and honestly, a lot of things in this movie, just the actual execution. We're kind of we're talking earlier about kind of general feelings on comedies. Mm-hmm. One of the things I hated so much about this movie is the original movies felt like they had kind of this very distinct identity. And you can talk about just kind of the way they imagine the future. There was something distinct and there was like a very futurist vibe to the movie. It didn't feel like just another kind of generic 80s movie. Even if it wasn't the most flashy movie formally, it felt like it had an identity. This one was a generic studio comedy. Yeah, it does like, not feel that's like all it really was. And like, yeah, it doesn't really feel like that distinct for in any way. I guess. I mean, it was directed by the guy who did Fun with Dick and Jane. Okay. And it looked like it. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I guess I don't know. I guess my point, even though I liked the Dennis guy. And you did like I found some of that stuff funny. Even if I agree, it doesn't totally come together as a character. There wasn't really anything else I laughed at. And I, 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 it just, there just was, there just weren't a lot of laughs. And I, and I agree. Like the, it might not have gone as deep on the historical fitter, figures and undercutting them. But like, I'm not gonna lie. Like I actually did. I, I got a kick out of the Mozart Jimi Hendrix little music riff. Like I thought yeah. that was, I thought that was at least fun to listen to. And that was like a fun moment. And like you kind of, like you said, if you like jazz, it's kind of a little fun watching you learn a little bit about these people. And that's about where it ended for me. Like I, I enjoyed some of those fun moments in isolation going back with them. And that's about as far as I could really get with it. You know, um, I yeah, know. look, when, when, when I say, I wish like the movie was just about the daughters, mm-hmm. it's not because everything involving the daughters worked. It's because I bought in, like I just, I bought into the idea of their sections working and maybe kind of making their journey, like the entirety of the movie would have given them enough space to like actually follow through on that. Yeah. I don't even like, know. I don't even know what to say about the Bill and Ted half of the movie. I agree oh with that. God, with the daughters. Was, like I, I, I don't, oh, I, I, I have a lot of things to say about the Bill and Ted half of the movie. Just none of them are good. Well, I, I'm just having trouble even envisioning like a version of that that does work. Whereas like you, you're saying, like if, if it is just the daughters, like I see where that would work. Yeah. 
Um, well, I mean, I think the point is there was a version of a movie about the daughters that could have worked. I And this is sad for me because I really, again, I love those first two movies. But you were excited about this movie, so I'm sure... I, I was unironically excited, even though, and this is like, I know we talked about this movie a lot going, leading into it. Mm-hmm. In the back of my head, there is a part of me that always knew there is no way this is going to work, and there's... A, a very specific reason why hmm. this is not going to work. What's that? Remember what I, I, you know, I said it would come up when I talked about the myth and when I talked about one of the things about the movie that was so wonderful and so imaginative was this idea of the fantasy of a song being able to save the world. Hmm. Um, and the thing is, you set a movie 25 years later or however, whatever, however later it is. I don't know if you noticed, but the world hasn't been saved yet. Oh, true. And it's just kind of the reality of that. There is no way to kind of set the movie at this t- moment without kind of making these guys people who have failed to capitalize on the myth. And there is some, and I, and I get that the movie was trying to kind of subvert that and show like, look, it wasn't ever really about them, and like that, this part didn't matter. I kind of also, I, I also kind of saw the daughters being the ones to write it coming from a mile away. Oh, okay. The first time we hear them say like, Lo, like uh, Logan and Preston instead of Bill and Ted, it's like, oh, gee, I wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, I, I get that the movie was trying to kind of subvert the originals. But I don't think that was the right choice. And I, I think there, like, there is something unique about the first two movies and, the, the like, kind of the impossible fantasy of the first two movies. Mm-hmm. And I think it worked better with that. Like, just that I, I don't think subverting that and showing, like, look, in the real world, you know, you're, these two guys aren't going to make the one song that saves the world. I didn't really feel like I needed that. And you know what? No shit in the real world. Like that—that's not how it works. Yeah, especially this particular point in time. It's, it's kind of funny to think about like anything like actually like that fixing our world. You know, like we're we're like they couldn't have thought that when they first started trying to get this movie made. But they they're releasing it at a very particular point in time, uh, especially in our country. But one thing though, as far as that song. You know, it wouldn't have like redeemed the it, w- it wouldn't have redeemed the rest of the movie. But I was saying as I was watching it with uh, my friends who are also friends of the podcast, Adam and Kayla. I was saying as I was watching, that, I was like, this movie has been really ridiculous and not all that good. But you know what? Maybe this song will kick ass at the end. And I am I, desperate to talk about this. And I, I, I just think they, I feel like they, they might have just dropped the ball on that. You know, I want to coin a term called midnight special syndrome. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, did you see the movie Midnight Special from a few uh, years ago? Yes. Okay. I really like that movie, and I love Jeff Nichols. The first 75% of that movie is the second best Jeff Nichols movie. <laughs> yeah. The problem is the ending. <laughs> and the ending, it's actually, it's not just bad. It's bad in a really unique way that I think actually taught me a lot as a filmmaker. Okay. Because so much of that movie is, a, like, I mean, just the, is, is gripping and personal and effective. But the movie is supposed to end with spoilers for a four-year-old movie. Um, like everyone getting this glimpse of this like other plane, other realm, like heaven, basically. And it's supposed to be so beautiful and so perfect that the mere sight of it basically brings us all together and kind of 
allows everyone to experience this moment of the sublime simultaneously. And uncons and like, I think that's a great concept for the ending. The problem is they show it hmm. and the absolute deflation of this like CGI world with this like kind of basic angel creatures flying around. It's like, this is supposed to be something so sublime that the mere sight of it kind of brings people together across the world. Actually trying to show that deflates everything. Well, I, I see, I see what you're saying, but I think they needed to play the song in this movie. It's a, the problem is there was like, I, I get that. Like, they're a band. Yeah. But here's the thing. There is no song that could have lived up to it. I guess so, yeah. And again, it's like when you have something that is supposed to be so perfect, so sublime, so beautiful, that it's like it, it's like it's impossible in this way. They could have played the first few chords of a song, maybe. In a literal medium-like film, actually trying to show the literal sublime, it just it doesn't work. Like, I think there are other like other more representational mediums where you can get away with that. Like, I actually think a really good example is comics. Because comics are a representational medium where we understand in consuming them that, like, okay, this is not the thing. This is a representation of the thing. Hmm. It, it kind of allows – like, there's one of the greatest kind of graphic novels of all time, and I'm a massive comic nerd, and I haven't really had an excuse, a chance to get into it in the podcast, so going to take that chance now. One of the greatest graphic novels of all time is something called The Ink Call, which is actually written by Alejandro Jodorowsky. Um, and drawn by this French artist named Mobius, who is like an artist's artist. And it ends with basically the main character meeting God. And it's a representation. So obviously it's a representation of the sublime. But it, because we have this understanding that we're not seeing the literal thing, it's one of like the most affecting two-page spreads that I've ever seen. Hmm. It's like immensely powerful. And just because, again, it doesn't have the pressure of having to present the literal thing itself, it's able to get away with that. In a film, and I don't necessarily think, I, I think people have taken this a little too far, there is this assumption that we are seeing the literal thing itself. Hmm. Film is a literal medium. It's not a representational medium, it is a literal medium. And so when you try to show the sublime or play the music of the sublime there's no way it could live up to that because we don't have anything that is that perfect yeah and that's why i think like if you make that your ending you're writing yourself into a corner and there's no way you can actually live up to what the moment is supposed to be that's a it's it's a fair point i guess i just i i I maybe I, I and I to, I totally get I to, everything you're saying makes sense. I still think I would have liked to have seen them try and do better than they did. Like it was still I, really I mean, they definitely could have done better than they did. Yeah, I, I don't know what that was. I mean, I, I, it's cool. That, I, I, I guess I like the idea of maybe trying to form a band with famous people from several different centuries, but I don't know. It, it just didn't culminate in the way I really wanted it to. But I, I, now that I think about it, like I thought at the end of uh, when you do get that glimpse of the future in excellent adventure, I, in my head, like, and maybe I just, cause it had been since my excellent adventure rewatch, it had been about, it had been about maybe two months since my excellent adventure rewatch. When I watched face the music, I thought there was a moment where they were playing like a moment of the song yeah. when they were in the future. And so I think maybe the better the better option that maybe splits the baby is to like 
do something again similar to that, but gave give you maybe a little more of a tease, and that's it. I, I and I think at that that at that point you you kind of avoid the letdown that you're kind of referring to. Um, yeah. And that might have been a I would have been totally satisfied with that. I didn't. I never thought they were actually going to do it that way. I just based on what the plot of the movie was. I'm like they're going to try and show us a song with yeah. all these people. Oh no! I mean, I knew going in that's that's what they were going to do. It's just I also knew going in that was a terrible idea that was going to end badly. Yeah, and I just thought. I mean, if you're going to try it, I just think they could have. Uh, I don't know, give, given it a better attempt. No, um, it felt generic and disposable. Mm-hmm. And speaking of generic and disposable, let's talk about the future. Okay. Um, yeah, I didn't, I really don't, I re- what do you have to say about that part of the movie? It just was it just wasn't funny. And I don't, I, it just didn't no, really like do sp- off of Specifically me. the fact that there was so little to say about it is what oh. I want to say about it. Because, because again, one of the things that was so amazing about the first movie mm-hmm. is this very specific portrayal of the future like it's not just oh this is the future it's oh this is like a hard rock future that like it feels retro futurist and like again you have like this weird council of rock presidents led by clarence clemens and it's like there's something magical and weird about it like it doesn't it feels distinct well on the one hand like a lot of movies that jump into the future like even back to the future, like jumps to what 2015, right? People's perception of the future back in the eighties of like the time we are in now was like, not what, not, not, I I don't, I, I, not really all that close. And they thought we, they, they legitimately probably thought we'd be flying on flying cars and stuff at this point. And we just aren't. So it is kind of funny that I think Bill and Ted as characters are of a certain level of intelligence such that they probably do think in 2020 that in 2025, like, they're, everything's going to look totally different when it's probably not the case. So I do think something's kind of funny about them continuing to find nothing all that different except for them just being fuck ups. But it just didn't. It I, I just it just didn't do it for me. Well, right. But what I'm talking about is like specifically the way they portrayed the far future. Oh, oh, oh okay. Like the actual future. With, you, like, you, you didn't mean the part where they were going five and then ten years. You meant the far, far future. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh no, that was terrible for a whole different set of reasons. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, I'm talking about the, just the actual portrayal of the far future because yeah. this actually connects to like again one of my problems with the movie. Okay. Because again, like their portrayal of the far future in the original movie felt distinct and it felt unique and exciting. Mm. This just felt like, again, it was a generic Apple future. Mm-hmm. Like nothing, like it technically looked better, although the special effects were terrible, but that's the least important problem. Mm -hmm. But again, even if things looked technically better, it felt less original and much more disposable. Mm -hmm. Like there was something, like not just utopian, but uniquely utopian about the way the original movie conceived the future. It's like, what if rock saved the world? Yeah, this, this is basically future, looks like, like the generic version of heaven almost was what it looked like. Yeah. Something. yeah. And it just it felt so generic and uninspired. Mm-hmm. It just again, it, it stepped on a lot of what made that original movie work. And yeah, it's just to me, that's kind of representative of larger problems the movie had. And it's one of the reasons why that moment in like just the portrayal of the future in particular just stuck at me so much. Yeah, I, um, it, it honestly didn't even stick at me that much because it was so disposable. I mean, it was yeah. in one ear and out the other such that, so quickly that I really didn't even have a chance to dwell on it and, and become offended. Uh, Look, I, I was an easy mark for this movie. Like, yeah. I did not come in wanting to hate this movie. Mm-hmm. 
I like I really tried to look past everything. I like forced myself to laugh a few times, but it just it felt so. The movie as a whole just felt so disposable, and it felt like it just it lost everything about what made the originals not just work, but what made them special. The only uh, the only moment of like Bill and Ted as old Bill and Ted that I really even kind of got a little bit of a kick of was them in the in the couples therapy. Uh, I thought it, I thought it at least was like an interesting way of just showing how stunted their growth was, and that they couldn't even conceive of being in their own relationship with their own wives. I, I, I got a couple little chuckles out of that, and that's really the only time I can think where I was like yeah. even kind of mildly amused by what was going on with them, and uh, no, nothing else really did much for me about it. I, I, I just I, I don't know. I, I just don't have a lot to say. It didn't it didn't really go anywhere all that interesting. It didn't. I mean. I, like I said, I, I was happy to see them revisit. I mean, I don't, I don't really. I, again, in, in their version of uh, their version of hell was very unimaginative too. I'd say, yeah. uh, though I enjoyed seeing uh, death, the return of death as a character. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm an easy mark for again that kind of character in these movies, but it just not not a whole lot else. All that interesting happened. Yeah. Um, no, and like again, and I, sh- I didn't really. I get in the movie one to like kind of almost deconstruct Bill and Ted as characters a little bit. Yeah, but like. Just let them be excellent. Yeah. Let them be triumphant. <laughs> let them be triumphant. Um, wild stallions for life. <laughs> and again, like actually just kind of going back to the daughters mm-hmm. again, because I, I do think I still do think that like they like the stuff involving them have the most promise, even if the actual execution didn't work. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily love the choice to make them carbon copies of, of Bill and Ted. I think it would have been much more interesting to kind of show, OK, what is a Bill and Ted now? Or what? Or, or yeah, or or even just what do regular kids? Th- <laughs> I mean, well, but again, if you if you had like a Bill and Ted, Bill and Ted, if Bill and Ted lived in twenty twenty, mm-hmm. who would they be? Like if they were born and grew up, uh, like in 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 the twenty first century, who would they be? Mm. Like the Bill and Ted as characters, they are relics of a very specific time, and that's okay. But making the daughters those same characters felt like kind of a wasted opportunity. I, 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 I enjoy Samara Weaving as an actress, so I guess I enjoyed trying to see her do that kind of thing. But I guess there's, there, I agree, there's like another way in which they're not carbon copies, and it's like how to like relatively normal 20, 20 people react to having people like, yeah, uh, like Theodore Logan those and Bill. Driven producers wasn't enough of like a distinct identity. Yeah, no. Like that, yeah. I agree, I agree. But yeah, uh, I mean, do you have any other um, things you want to say? Honestly, it's just, it's just really, it was disappointing. It was disappointing to see, it's not just that it was a good movie with a bad sequel. Mm-hmm. It's like a good pair of movies with a distinct identity, mm-hmm. a very real and distinct identity. Like it's those movies having a sequel that felt disposable and cheap. Like there, there was just nothing about these, this movie that even really resembled what made the first two special. Like, if it was just a bad sequel, I can I could live with that. I wouldn't like it, but I wouldn't feel as hurt by that. Like, this is, I don't know, I'm, I'm not like the guy who's like, oh, this thing from my childhood has to be the exact same. And I, I don't like that line of thinking. But do something specific with it. Don't take something that had an identity and replace it with something that lacks an identity. Make it its own thing. 
that's something I would have respected more. Well, I, one thing I'll say is that I do think that, like we said, I think the stuff with the daughter in a way maybe did kind of resemble some of the stuff from the original, but it didn't do any of the stuff it did. The original did really yeah, well. Again, in that the regard. idea of it. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I, you know, there, there's one moment in the original that still sticks out to me after watch, rewatching a couple months later, where at one point, like uh, Freud just completely 100 percent, like correctly, Freud, s- fr- fr- sorry, 100 uh, percent psychoanalyzes uh, Bill like exactly correctly, and then like a minute later, Bill, who we know to be kind of like a dumb character because these are dumb guys, just makes a just nails an Oedipal complex joke, and I, it was just like there wasn't anything quite that sharp in this with respect yeah. to these historical figures. And even if I did enjoy little bits and moments of it and uh, seeing Jimi Hendrix play with Beethoven was cool for like 10 seconds. It just, they, they didn't really sustain enough sharp humor around Mozart. them. Or, Mozart, sorry. Yeah. yeah. They, they didn't sustain enough like sharp humor around them that it really uh, m- m- made it worth it. But again, like there's a version, like as we said there, maybe there is a version of the, the movie with the daughters that works. And uh, I don't know, it's kind of disappointing. Cause again, why, why come back after all these years if you just don't have a better grasp on what you want to do, you know? Yeah. I mean, like the one thing is like, look, I don't think Keanu Reeves is the world's greatest actor. And I, I am not the biggest fan of John Wick. Well, how dare you? Uh, we, we, we can get into that some other time. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that the John Wick movies exist. I just don't think they're very good. But if anyone deserve, if any, if I'm happy for anyone to have kind of like a big franchise, it is Keanu Reeves because I, I just, he's someone I think like we root for him as a person. He's had so many peaks and valleys in his career that it's cool that he's at a point where he can actually get a third Bill and Ted movie made 29 yeah. years later. And, and, and that's the thing. It's like as weirdly disposable as the movie was, I know that every like, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter and the original writers whose names I don't remember right now, they wanted to make it. And if for no other reason than that, I'm glad they got to do it. I just wish, you know, their version of it had a little more of an identity and felt a little just more of a, more of a thing. Yeah. All right. Well, on a lighter note, Ben, before we sign off, yeah. has there been anything good that you've watched recently that, that you want to well, – because you haven't watched First Cow recently and you did watch Bill and Ted recently, but you didn't like that. Uh, is there anything else that you uh, have watched recently, anything else while in quarantine that you do want to tell people to go check out? So, I mean, I've, I've watched some stuff here or there, like I just because it's still I, – I really hate watching stuff on my computer. And just again, I live in L.A. Theaters are still closed here which, you know, as much as I hate it, good thing. Yeah. So I haven't watched as much as I normally would. I've, I've seen some good stuff here and there. The thing I want to plug is actually a movie I haven't had a chance to see yet. Hmm. Um, just because I don't think I'm going to have a chance to plug it, like, anytime soon. Um, there's a movie out right now in theaters and on VOD called The Wolf at Snow, at Snow Hollow. And I actually, like, I know a lot of people who worked on it. And I just want to give it a plug. It's gotten some like really great reviews. It's also the last performance of Robert Forster. Oh. And again, basically, it's a dark comedy uh, involving a werewolf, or is it? Or yeah, set in I want to say I forgot if they did it in Oregon or Washington, but somewhere in the Pacific Northwest hmm. or Utah. It's one of those three. But again, it's the second feature by a guy named Jim Cummings. And for anyone who didn't see Jim's first movie, uh, Thunder Road, 
really worth checking out. It, it won South by Southwest. It's also one of the most interesting like stories of self-distribution ever. But it's also just a really good movie. It's a really funny movie about grief. And it's it's a movie that like I recommend to a lot of people. And like when I got out of it, my first thought was if this movie came out in the late 80s or early 90s, Jim Cummings would be the Coen brothers. Hmm. But I think he's a really great filmmaker. This is a second movie. I haven't had a chance to see it yet. I'm going to give it a watch soon. There's still a part of me that like wants to hold out hope that theaters will reopen soon. And if that's the case, I'll see it in theaters. But really recommend giving it a watch. Not just because it's gotten some great reviews, has like some great actors, but also just to support a bunch of like legitimately really good people. Because um, again, I know a lot of people who made this and they're all just the best. Like I can't. Yeah, I appreciate that plug because I have not seen Thunder Road and it has been on my like Amazon Prime watch list. It's even been downloaded on my iPad for a while, and I for, for whatever reason I've just let it slip by. So that I think that might be the extra push I need to actually watch it this weekend. So I appreciate both both plugs. Um, I'm going to plug something that I watched at, right after I watched Face the Music that helped get the bad taste out of my mouth. Uh, it is now on Netflix, and that is Walk Hard. Which I had yes. not, I had not seen Walk Hard since I saw it in theaters back in like 2007 or whatever, and I was watching with Adam and Kayla, and we were just looking for something else to watch, and there, there was, and Adam's like, "Oh, that's one of my favorite movies of all time." I'm like, I haven't watched that movie in 13 years. Let's watch Walk Hard, and I don't. Th- when Walk Hard first came out, I think I might have enjoyed it for the just the goofiness of it that any 15 uh, year old might get out of a movie like that. And at that point, I didn't have the same knowledge of like the musical biopic and what that movie was actually doing that I do now. Cause I've seen so many of the other movies around that. And I, and I think I even might've seen walk the line in theaters and I still didn't get it. You know, I just was too young to really understand everything that walk hard was trying to do. And what was really impressive was that, yes, it's obviously um, it's, it's obviously doing something with respect to all those movies, but because of that, because of my knowledge of those movies, like I know where every scene in walk hard is going before it even goes there. And I still laugh at it, which is the point, which just shows how it, it just, that just shows the level at which it's executed that like i mean yeah it's doing a riff on all this stuff but like it's doing it in such a way that like you're laughing at you're laughing as it's happening and even if you know exactly what's coming and there's a there's a lesser ex, there's a lesser version of such a movie that just like kind of falls flat and it certainly doesn't you know good i i can't agree more and the the, the one warning i have for anyone who, who goes to watch walk hard you will never be able to enjoy a music biopic again mm. I, which I, I, I think Walk Hard is a great comedy. And I also think that like more than any other movie I've seen, it basically just so totally just kind of destroys an entire genre um, to, to the point that like when every music biopic I've seen since. Don't lie. You love Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> I still haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, I, I, I should have guessed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I, I stand. I'm, I'm very comfortable with that choice. <laughs> walk hard good 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 choice yeah 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 okay well um is there is there anything else you want to plug personally before you sign off whether it be letterbox or something like that or are you good um i mean yeah i mean you can follow i don't think i've like updated my letterbox in months oh, but okay. I, I i am probably gonna get back to that soon i kind of have a lot of stuff on my list that i plan on probably reviewing mm-hmm. um one i mean just one plug i have like look just because i have to mm-hmm Please vote. And and not only vote, please, like, if you live in a state that has mail-in voting, please make a plan to vote. Please make sure you, like, vote early if you can. Please go down 
just go go through what your state's actual rules on voting are and make sure you are able to vote. Um, not going to go into anything partisan here, even if, you know, people can probably guess my political leanings from my appearances on this podcast. But this is Ben loves capitalism. Did you just listen to our conversation about first cow? <laughs> oh, yeah. In uh, Rand all day. Um, but no, just like this is such an important election. Please vote. Even if you're apolitical, no, just, it, it is too important of an election not to vote in. And so that's the one thing I want to plug. It's great. And uh, Florida will be in the middle of early voting when this post. I don't trust the post office right now. I mean, I think you'll, your ballot should get there. It's just going to take longer than it should if you want to use the post office. And that's the safest, the way you feel safest. But if you're, if, if you feel like you can make it to an in-person polling place, uh, polling place and just do the mask and social distance thing, that is what I'm going to do because I have a mail-in ballot, but you can bring your mail-in ballot in Florida to an early voting location and just give it to them and then they'll give you a real ballot and you can vote like that. So I'm just going to do that myself. That's an option. But just like if you're going to vote by mail, make sure you get it in sooner rather than later and don't just let it sit on your kitchen counter, which I've done before and I've still gotten it in plenty of time. But like we're unfortunately in a much different place with the U.S. Postal Service than we were in even 2018. So co-signing all of that. But yeah, uh, I I co-sign everything Ben said about voting. uh, But also if you want to follow the podcast on Twitter, it's the Rewind Movie Pod on Gmail, rewindmoviepod at gmail.com. I'm Josh Jernavoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-I on both Twitter and Letterboxd. Uh, coming up next on the podcast, probably going to have our friends Daniel and Lissa join us to talk about Adam Sandler's Hubie Halloween, which will be the first time I've ever watched an Adam Sandler Netflix original. So uh, I think I'm in for something, but like I was... Uh, I was given the hard sell by our friend Daniel, so I'm gonna watch. Th- I'm I'm gonna go somewhere where I've never gone with Adam Sandler before. So you guys can well either that well actually either that that one will be next or the trial of the Chicago Seven. So uh, it, it's it's those two in some order. Uh, so you're bringing me on for that one, right? <laughs> Hubie Halloween, you got you gotta. I mean, like I I I I, sh- I, sh- I, I gotta start asking you for stuff like that. You know, you're, I legitimately you- do not expect I will ever see that movie. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. You surprise people with uh, be, be, you surprise people by being a Bill and Ted fan. So I guess I got to start inviting you for every comedy and just seeing what actually is there or what, what actually uh, piques your interest. Uh, I mean, you definitely got to bring me back for the next Star Wars movie. Oh yeah, I mean, like, I mean, at that point, like, I'm not, I'm not even worried about offending the masses like I was the last time. Like, they, they would have deserved whatever you had to say about the Rise of Skywalker. Thanks so much to Ben for joining me. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.